Hi, I'm Rick Samprin. The latest Bill Kelly Show podcast, Stuff With Stuff, including Iran striking back at the U.S. for killing General Qasem Soleimani. We get the latest from Matthew Fisher from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. We also chat with Dave Rohr from the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum after a Ukrainian Airlines plane crashed in Iran, killing nearly 180 people, including more than 60 Canadians. And Deloitte Canada has released its latest economic outlook, and it says politics aside, growth will improve in 2020. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Iran has struck back at the United States for killing a top Revolutionary Guard commander, General Qasem Soleimani. If you were listening to your radio or watching TV last night, you would have seen some of the images or heard the details of what has happened. Iran firing a series of ballistic missiles at two military bases in Iraq, housing American troops, one in the northern Iraqi city of Erbil, the other at Ain al-Assad in western Iraq. American and Iraqi sources said there were no known casualties. Uh, let's get some more details from Global News reporter Reggie Cicchini. White House officials were floating the idea of an address on Tuesday night, but stepped back, possibly to allow for some space after Iran launched ballistic missiles at air bases where both U.S. and coalition, including Canadian troops, are positioned. The flex of Iranian military muscle is seen as a win for the regime, who calls the attack a, quote, slap in the face to America, and is now demanding U.S. troops perform an about-face. It is up to the United States to now come to its senses and stop it's adventurism in this region. American military personnel have been deployed into the region to ward off aggression from either Iran or its proxies. It's reported Iran tipped off Iraqi officials before the strikes, which appear to have been calculated. Iran has significant capabilities to carry out a large-scale attack. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. All right, now that you know more of the details, let's bring in our first guest of the day. Matthew Fisher is his name, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and he joins us now, and uh, I think I just hung up on him. Can you believe it what a start to the morning it'll double click of the phone line sorry ben ben strawn our technical producer is going to ring him up once again this has to be the biggest test of u.s president donald trump's presidency i know he has the impeachment thing going on right now i know he's been vilified for the things he said and done over the past few years but this has to be number one Sorry, Matthew, I accidentally hung up on you. Glad to have you on the air with us this morning. Uh, nice to speak with you this morning, although I'm afraid the the news is not particularly nice and an unpredictable situation has become even more unpredictable with uh, the missile attack that you are describing, uh, which probably will require, in the American uh, point of view, uh, uh, a response, and, and then, of course, uh, all the questions that will be coming up about the that Ukrainian airplane with a lot of passengers on board, many of them Canadians, I suspect Canadians largely of Iranian descent, uh, who were killed uh, uh, in the accident just outside Tehran, which may not have been an accident. Uh, so it's very dramatic, the developments in the past few hours, uh, and it means... It's even harder to predict what comes next. Before we get to some of your thoughts on what President Trump is going to do next, uh, just give us your thoughts on how Iran has responded to the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Well, they responded with the usual high rhetoric. Uh, 
death to America, uh, very public displays of anger and uh, sorrow. Uh, at funerals, uh, they they can turn out a million people or two million people for a funeral at the drop of a hat. That's what they did. Uh, this actual military response is fairly measured. Uh, they have the capability to send a lot more in the direction of U.S. forces, uh, not only in Iraq, uh, but in the Gulf states and also at U.S. warships at sea in the area. So from the Iranian point of view, you could say it's a, a limited attack. But of course, that will not be how it's regarded in Washington uh, by any American president, but particularly, I think, by this American president. And so the gloves uh, have sort of come off and uh, we will wait. Usually these things happen at night, but not always for the American response. One would think the Americans already have F-35 and F-22 stealthy jets over Iran all the time because they can't be found on radar, and uh, some of them may go operational. The Americans have a, a huge number of choices. They could launch cruise missile attacks from destroyers, cruisers uh, in the Gulf or even from the Indian Ocean, and uh, submarines uh, can do that as well. They've got F-15, F-16 aircraft at a number of bases in Iraq and along the coast, uh, and they've brought in about seven to 8,000 crack U.S. troops combat troops, frontline, frontline combat troops, I must say, uh, into the region in the last 96 hours. So uh, there are a lot of options for the Americans to respond. What do you think the president's response is going to be? Word is he's going to uh, address the nation or at least uh, unveil his plan uh, sometime this morning. Well, he's going to say he warned Iran not to do this, and uh, Iran has responded. Uh, of course, we all know Iran was going to respond. We just didn't know what the first salvo would be like. Uh, this is not the only Iranian response, by the way. I'm sure that there are terrorists and all this. That airplane that was shot down, uh, if it was shot down by anybody, there may have been high-value targets on board because Ukraine is a way, a back door to Europe that could be used by uh, organizations meant, uh, who are planning to do harm in Europe. That's pure speculation, but the fact that uh, there was a, an engine on fire when you fire missiles at uh, an airplane, uh, they go for the heat center, and the heat center's the engine. That leads to uh, questions about that, and conspiracy theories. Theorists are out all over the place on this over the last 72 or 96 hours, and uh, they're going to have a field day the next 24 hours trying to unravel some of these things but it's going to get worse and the americans will definitely do something they have so many options uh but they can't win this they can punish uh, iran terribly but they can't win this they're not contemplating going to war with half a million land troops in iran they couldn't possibly hold the country so uh, they can attack but they they can't hold territory and uh, they can't really win Matthew Fisher is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and is joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill this week. Because there are no or, or were no American casualties in uh, last night's uh, missile strikes by Iran, does that give Trump an easier route to de-escalation if he's thinking about that? For 
some American presidents, perhaps for Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton, that might be the case, less likely for a Republican president. And also, I've read uh, this morning speculation that Iran has such precise weapons that uh, they chose to hit an American base but not uh, hurt Americans uh, to escalate the situation further. That's giving the Iranians a lot of credit. If you fire a dozen ballistic missiles at a base, I've been to Al-Assad Air Base, I've been to the base in Erbil, uh, they're quite big, uh, and if you fire a dozen missiles at them, Iraqis apparently died in these attacks. The fact that uh, no Americans died is probably just pure luck. There uh, was also, and this uh, caught fire on uh, Twitter last night as I was just scrolling through, uh, uh, you know, the 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 feed of uh, you know dozens and hundreds of tweets on this. Um, but you mentioned other targets in the Gulf, and two of those that popped up were Haifa, Israel, and Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Um, why those two in particular coming to the top of the list? Well, Haifa is uh, a port where the Israeli Navy. Uh, um, um, runs from, I, I don't know quite why they would say Haifa. Those attacks are likely to come from Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is closely allied with the Iranian government. In fact, many people don't make a distinction between the two. Uh, but th- their rockets uh, tend to be fired all over the country, scattershot. So uh, I'm a bit, bit dubious about why Haifa nowhere else. Haifa certainly would be a target, but one of many, many targets. Dubai is where uh, you get a lot of attention because so many Western tourists, uh, Canadians, but especially Australians, Europeans, Brits, are are there in their many thousands all the time, particularly during the winter when it's a bit cooler there than in the summer. Uh, And uh, uh, it's very vulnerable. And the government of the UAE is strongly, it's Sunni, and it's strongly opposed to Iran's Shia government. There's been lots of things uh, about that out there. The Americans also have naval resources that sometimes used Dubai, uh, uh, Jebel Ali, the, the big harbor that they have just outside of Dubai. And um, the, the Americans also have air bases there. Uh, and I don't know at the moment what aircraft they have there. But So there are U.S. targets as well. The whole Gulf is a target because all the governments, Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, Saudi Arabia, they're all run by Sunnis. The Saudis in particular have big disputes with the Iranians. There's a proxy war between them taking place already in Yemen, and they've attacked, uh, the Iranians have with missiles, Saudi oil refineries. They've attacked tankers leaving from Gulf states such as Qatar, and um, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Uh, It is an extremely volatile little area. You see all these little statelets, and you wonder how there could be trouble with them. But for strategic reasons and also for political, cultural, traditional reasons, uh, they are all conceivably targets, and all of them, to varying degrees, hate Iran, as does Israel, uh, and uh, that goes back a long way. And, of course, the Americans have their own deeply troubled relationship with Iran, going back to the embassy hostage crisis in 1979 uh, and when Jimmy Carter was the president. Um, you know, it goes without saying that President Trump is at a tumultuous time as president. So there's been a, a number of highs and, and definitely a number of lows. Um, is this the greatest test of his presidency? Could this could this be his legacy? 
Uh, well, uh, uh, I think his legacy is more likely to be domestic in terms of how Americans remember him. But this is certainly his biggest international test. And um, until now, he's not done a particularly good job of communicating his strategy, if he has, in fact, a strategy. Um, he has not taken the advice of his generals and of his diplomatic corps because they were opposed to what he did. It's pretty clear, although they don't publicly speak loudly against him. Those two important constituencies uh, are aghast at what is taking place. Uh, and so the frictions in the U.S. government are getting worse. But I, I just read the opinion poll this morning that suggests that, as often happens with presidents and prime ministers when a war is underway, it, there's support for Trump, uh, um, greater support now. 55% think he's doing a great job on Iran. And this happens in a time of war, and Trump is trying to wrap himself in the flag. If you follow Twitter at all, he literally, after uh, his attack uh, uh, in uh, Baghdad last week, uh, his entire tweet one time was an American flag, nothing else. So he's wrapped himself in the flag. And this will help him. But don't forget the election's still 10, 11 months off and these wars can veer in odd directions. Uh, before then, uh, George Bush Sr. was hugely pres um, popular after the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and then uh, he lost the election because in the interim, support for domestic policies fell apart. So it helps Trump now, but whether it helps him uh, in the fall, certainly remains to be seen. We have about 30 seconds. How soon do you expect America to strike back? Oh, very soon. Uh, I'd be surprised if they're not out there tonight doing something, perhaps in the day. Uh, and if not, then in a day or two. And the only delay would be maybe weather and targeting and getting exactly the right intelligence information for whatever it is they're deciding to do. Maybe one or two military resources, a warship or something, is not in the exact place they want it to be. That would be the only thing that I think holds this up, and it could hold it up a bit. But I am guessing tonight, and I'm expecting the Iranians will respond uh, pretty quickly too, uh, but perhaps in a different way, terrorism or hitting some of the Gulf states. Uh, it remains to be seen. Matthew, appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot. You're most welcome. Thank you. Matthew Fisher, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs uh, Institute, also a longtime foreign correspondent for the Globe and Mail and uh, Post Media. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tragedy in Iran, and some are suggesting it might be associated with the missile strikes, but it remains under investigation after a uh, Ukrainian International Airlines jet crashed and uh, 176 people are killed, including 63 Canadians. Investigators are scouring fields of smoldering debris near the airport where it came down. They've retrieved a black box, but as yet they haven't announced a cause. Initially, the Ukrainian embassy in Iran blamed a mechanical failure, but their government retracted that statement, although they do now say they're not considering any pilot error. Flight radar shows the plane never made it above 8,000 feet. Now, Ukrainian international airlines say the plane last had a maintenance check on Monday, and they've suspended all flights to Tehran indefinitely.
That is uh, reporter James Longman. 82 Iranians, 11 Ukrainians, 10 Swedes, 4 Afghans, 3 Germans, 3 British nationals also on board, uh, including those 63 Canadians. Uh, The crash, which killed everyone on board, happened this morning, just hours after Iran launched a ballistic missile attack on two Iraqi bases housing American soldiers. The youngest victim on board this aircraft was born in 2016, the oldest born in 1950. 27 individuals, we understand, are from the Edmonton Area. Let's bring in our next guest. His name is Dave Rohr. He is the president and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. Uh, David, good morning. Morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? Good, thank you. Um, some are suggesting uh, an airstrike might be to blame, and others suggesting mechanical. Maybe we'll start with the latter. What could go wrong in this case when we're talking mechanical failure? Well, uh, these airplanes, the Boeing 737-800NG is, a, 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 first of all, a very uh, modern airplane with modern avionics and electrical systems, power systems, hydraulic systems. Uh, so the airplane is designed to fly in the event, for example, you had an engine failure. The airplane is certified and designed to fly on one engine safely, and uh, pilots are trained to do that in regular training and simulators. So... Um, it's not like the old days where if an engine failure happened, it might be uh, jeopardize the safety of flight. So in this case, the uh, the actual flight envelope of the airplane is, is quite interesting in that it was a takeoff, normal climb to 78,000 feet. And then um, we also have on modern airplane systems where you used to track an airplane based on radar, ground-based radar, uh, picking up the target. But now airplanes actually transmit their positions to satellites and uh, and also receivers on the ground. And uh, it appears in this case that at 8,000 feet, the location, uh, the airplane stopped transmitting any information from itself, which would indicate electrical uh, failure. And uh, the ro- the systems on these kind of airplanes, electrical systems, are very robust with lots of redundancy. So uh, that's a, a fact that the investigators will really be interested into. Why did why was there a total electrical failure and a, inability to transmit position or communicate? And uh, that would uh, you don't rule anything out, but it would certainly uh, lead you down some path that you'd want to know why that happened. I should make mention that uh, this Boeing plane was not the Air Max, which, you know, two of them uh, were involved in deadly plane crashes last year. That has been, you know, thrust out of service. So that's, you know, one thing to keep in mind. That That is correct. It's not the Max 8 uh, or the Max 9. Uh, the 800NG uh, model has uh, many, many thousands of hours of uh, very dependable service. Uh, it flies all over the world. It's in uh, service of many, many airlines. Uh, Southwest, for example, the United States, uh, it's very big operator of these airplanes. So uh, the airplane has a very good reputation, and this particular airplane is a relatively new airplane being built in 2016. And uh, so the airplane itself uh, is a well-known product. The uh, conspiracy theorists are out, some contemplating or speculating that an airstrike took this plane down. It, would that be easy to rule out at this point? Well, no, you uh, you wouldn't rule it out. As an investigator, uh, when you're going into the investigation, you don't rule anything out. And whatever you try to drive as factual, you try to establish by two independent routes of logic and, and fact. So in this case, no, you wouldn't rule that out. And uh, there are indications given the flight path and the lack of uh, position reporting and communications that 
would indicate that this is a possibility. Uh, what you would do, uh, uh, the good thing is that the black boxes have been found, the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder have been recovered. Uh, now, pending the, uh, the downloading of that digital information and what that information tells you, you'll have uh, a much more uh, valued information to make a decision with regards to whether there's foul play involved or not. Our guest is Dave Rory, the president and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. Where does an investigation of this nature begin? Does it begin with the black box um, and flight data recorders, or can you surmise what happened just by looking at the scene? Well, there's always the the ground scar, uh, and the crash site will tell you lots of valuable information. It'll give you information as to the angle of impact and and where the debris field actually is in terms of its layout will all indicate what kind of angle attack and what kind of speed the airplane hit the ground at. But uh, the way you start is uh, in these types of investigations, under uh, the United Nations uh, ICAO, International Civil Aviation Organization, which is based in Montreal, there are international conventions and agreements in place as to how the investigation would be conducted. Uh, Turan, Iran being the state of occurrence, has full responsibility to conduct the investigation, but uh, Ukraine being the state of registry and operation has standing in that investigation. And under normal circumstances, the United States being the state of design and manufacture of the aircraft would have standing in that investigation as well. Given the political environment, uh, Iran, I believe, has already said that's not going to happen. Although uh, in the terms of the black boxes which have been recovered, uh, there are special uh, labs in which you can download that information, the United States obviously being one. Uh, Canada has a very competent, uh, the Transportation Safety Board has a very competent uh, FDR-CVR playback center. So the negotiations will be going on now as to who's going to read those boxes and where. And it can be a third independent, competent party. Uh, and that may be something going on between the investigators uh, and those that have standing in the investigation as to where that data will be read, because it'll be extremely key and beneficial to the investigation. And normally, uh, you'd like that data to be read as soon as possible and preliminary uh, reports and information out within 30 days. So uh, uh, reading that data as soon as possible, is is 30 days too late? Is a week too late? Uh, no, it, it's not unusual. I mean, all the groundwork and all the normal investigative techniques will be ongoing. Uh, you know, obviously, you're going to be looking at the debris field. You're going to be looking at the aircraft. Uh, if there is foul play, uh, there are there are physical evidences of that normally available, uh, given residues or given uh, damage patterns on parts of the airplane that will give you clues about that, as well as uh, there's uh, obviously a lot of... Uh, uh, you're looking at injury patterns uh, uh, to the passengers, which will give you indications uh, of what type of events led to that injury, whether it was pre, uh, pre-impact or post-impact. So there's a lot of work to be being done, uh, plus there's a number of witnesses that might have seen things that you want to capture all that information. So that's all going on concurrently Why you're negotiating where the boxes are going to be unloaded or downloaded and read. We've learned that the plane was manufactured in 2016. Uh, airline officials said there was no sign of anything uh, wrong when the plane took off. It had last been routinely serviced on Monday. So all things seem to have you know, a checkmark beside them to say there's, there's no red flags here. 
No, there, there aren't at this point. Uh, and you do look at the maintenance history of the airplane. You look at the training and background experience of the crews, which, again, uh, I understand the captain on the airplane had 11,000 flight hours, uh, much of it on this kind of airplane. You look at their training performance in simulators, and you look at their medical history and background, uh, and you look at uh, all these factors. Uh, you look at the, the airplane when it came into service, uh, what maintenance has been done, if there's been any uh, malfunctions or snags, as we call them on the airplane, and what they were, could it be related in any way to, to what we know right now about the occurrence. So, uh, but generally speaking, it's unusual, very unusual for airplanes like this to just fall out of the sky. We're chatting with Dave Rohr. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum here in Hamilton. Uh, this is the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill today. Uh, we talked a little bit about black box and flight data recorder. What's the difference? What do they each do and what will they tell investigators? Well, the, the flight data recorder today, you know, in years gone past, uh, when I was in accident investigation for 11 years with the Canadian government, uh, as aviation has uh, modernized and advanced in technology, flight data recorders used to record very limited number of flight parameters. Uh, and today now with the computerization and digitization of these recorders, they can contain up to 500 to 600 parameters of the flight. So they'll tell you uh, everything about the engine operation, everything about the uh, flight envelope of the airplane, uh, the airspeed, the temperatures. Uh, they'll record the uh, systems on the airplane, the electrical systems, how they're operating, what their voltage and amps and loads are. They'll tell you about hydraulics. They'll tell you about the pressurization system. They record all these parameters, which is very, very helpful. And that combined with the cockpit voice recorder, which uh, will record inner cockpit uh, conversations as well as any radio transmissions it really helps you paint a picture a factual picture of what the exact environment was at the time of the occurrence so when do you expect we'll start getting some answers or, or even the the whole picture well i think you know in a normal situation where there's no political uh, uh, overriding concerns or inter- interference uh, normally uh, if it's the uh, United States, for example, National Transportation Safety Board, they would release the factual information very quickly. Uh, some of the other countries don't release it quite that quickly. Uh, but I would think that you would you, you want to have preliminary information out to the public and normally within at a maximum 30 days. And then, of course, the investigation continues and it can be a year or so before a final report is written. But but generally, the, the pertinent factual information should be made known to the public normally as soon as possible within within a 30-day period. Whether that will happen in this situation or not is hard to say. And obviously, time is of the essence. You know, we have weather conditions could wreak havoc with, uh, you know, the crash site, uh, you know, people milling about who shouldn't be there or, or, you know, curious onlookers. So really, time is essential here in, in terms of getting to what happened. Absolutely. Time is of the essence. And, uh, you know, the crash site security is a a big issue. And capturing the evidence while it's there, photographing it, documenting it, and then analyzing it is a very uh, strenuous exercise at this time, but one that is very time sensitive and you need to do right away. And, uh, of course, you need to have the people who are qualified to do that on the ground as quickly as possible. and, And that takes some time in this case, I'm sure. Dave, uh, always thank you uh, for the time, and uh, thanks for joining us this morning. 
Well, it's a pleasure, Rick. Have a good day. You too. Dave Rohr is the president and uh, CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Deloitte Canada has a new report out providing an economic outlook entitled Politics Aside, Growth Improves. What kind of growth are we talking about here? Craig Alexander is Chief Economist at Deloitte Canada and joins us now. Craig, good morning. Good morning. Well, give us the the top line highlights of this uh, outlook. What does it say? Well, I think 2020 is going to be a slightly better year than, than 2019, but the pace of growth will still be uh, modest. So I think for a lot of Canadian businesses, it's still going to feel like an environment where you're, you're working hard to get ahead. Um, you know, if we think about 2019, it was, it was a year that was fraught with political risks. Um, in fact, heading into 2019, the equity market had suffered its worst contraction uh, in any December on record. And there were a lot of fears that a recession could take hold. What's, what's remarkable is when you look back at 2019 and say, so how did we actually do? The answer is the economy uh, experienced growth of around 1.7%, which is actually an average pace of growth for the Canadian economy. And so even though there was, it was an environment fraught with political risks and a lot of financial market volatility, we managed to ride through them. And as we got to the end of last year and heading into the start of this year, some of the key political risks had actually diminished. The fact that U.S. and China trade tensions, you know, they weren't solved, but they basically entered into a, you know, in a a sense like a a Cold War, where things settled down, we're we're not seeing an escalation anymore, the tariffs haven't come off, um, the talks are going to continue. But what 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 we see is the worst case isn't playing out. Well, similarly in Europe, the big risk was that the UK could leave the EU under what, what gets called Brexit without a deal in place, and that could be very harmful to the European economy. Well, it looks like that's, been, that's going to be avoided. So some of the key risks have diminished. Now new, new political risks have, 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 have risen to the forefront. The US-Iranian um, situation adds to the global political risks. Um, but, you know, politics aside... What we're actually seeing is the economy is managing its way through these these turbulent political times, deliver, continuing to deliver growth. So I think in the coming year, growth will probably improve slightly to around 1.9%. How is an outlook like this compiled? You, you mentioned a number of different factors and, and different risk factors that you're keeping an eye on. But how do you take all that and say, you know, the economy is going to grow by this much or it's going to you know, retract by this much? How, do you, how does that uh, formula work? Sure. So um, the way we we do it is it's actually generated by economic models that are based on historical economic relationships. So what what the model will say is, let's look back over the the last 50 years of Canadian history and say, you know, if you get if you get a, you know, a certain increase in consumer income or household income, you know, what will that do to consumer spending? And then, you know, you, you factor in things like so for the consumer, you factor in What's going to happen in terms of the number of jobs created? What's going to happen in terms of household income? What's going to happen in terms of interest rates? What's going to happen to the Canadian dollar? And then when you put all those factors together, you can generate uh, an estimate that says, well, if the, all of that happens, I think consumer spending is going to be okay. I think consumer spending is probably going to grow at a, at a moderate pace. But the one thing that's actually keeping consumers from spending even more money is the fact that they're carrying a lot of debt. And so... The models pick up things like 
the the amount of leverage households have taken on, and then and then the question of you know what happens to interest payments. And so there's assumptions like, for example, we don't ex- we are, we are assuming the Bank of Canada will not raise or cut interest rates in the coming year, and so debt service costs remain stable. And so that's that's how we go about doing this sort of this sort of projection, looking at you know based on historical relationships, based on how the economy is doing today, and based on assumptions about what we think is the most likely path forward. The models will generate projections for how many jobs will be created and how much income will be created and how much spending will happen. It's pretty neat how you can take historical data and then apply it to, you know, situations that are happening right now and get an accurate portrait of, of what is going to happen. Well, and it's a, you know, let's be honest about it. Let's be completely transparent. It's a best guess. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's actually a lot of different scenarios that can play out. Um, so, for example, an escalation of tensions in the Middle East or a war breaking out in the Middle East. That is not in the forecast because there's no way as, a, as an economist I can project what will happen on that political front. This is actually why um, often businesses use scenarios, right? Rather than, rather than just saying, okay, we're going to assume this is how the economy is going to do, we basically say, okay, well, how will the economy do if the U.S.-China trade war um, escalates? What will happen actually if it's resolved? Let's say President Trump wants to announce a big win before running in the next election and between now and say july he reaches you know a significant deal with with china right well that that then would create an upside risk to the forecast so you know you can think about this as being a whole variety of different possible paths the canadian economy might take under different assumptions and the forecast that i'm describing where we're going to have growth improved to to 1.9%. That's what I think is the most likely scenario for the Canadian economy. We're chatting with uh, Craig Alexander. He's uh, Chief Economist at Deloitte Canada here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. Uh, Domestically, one of the big stories, certainly of 2019, uh, economy-wise, was uh, the new NAFTA deal between uh, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. How does that factor in into this latest economic outlook? So that was a great example of one of the political risks that was present in 2019 that actually resolved itself in a constructive way. So Congress has now passed the, 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 new, the, new, the, the new deal that replaces NAFTA. Um, you know, it has a funny name because it's named after each of the individual com- company, uh, countries, and that means actually the name changes depending on what country you're in. So in the U.S., it's called USMCA because you always put the country you're, you're, you're in first. So it's USMCA in the United States. It's CUSMA, C-U-S-M. USMA in Canada. So from a Canada point of view, the new trade deal is not dramatically different than the old trade deal. It, it, there are some tweaks and some adjustments, but it's not a game changer. It does the one thing that Canada absolutely required, and that was to maintain tariff-free access to the U.S. marketplace. Um, it also um, diminished the risk of further U.S. protectionism against Canada. And so, you know, you can quibble about some of the details. Uh, you know, there's some, some things in it that I like and some things in it that I, I don't like. But on balance, it actually did what, was, what, what we needed. And in fact, it, redu- it, it increases business confidence that they now, that businesses in Canada that trade in the U.S. know what the rules of the game are. And what that means, that is actually a positive and an upside for the Canadian economy in 2020. Uh, staying domestically, uh, interest rates here in Canada still relatively low, uh, but the Bank of Canada has been hinting uh, over the past number of months that uh, it, it is going to go up eventually. Uh, what, what does the outlook foresee in this regard? So 
My base case forecast, what I think the most likely scenario is, basically has the Bank of Canada staying on the sidelines. Um, yes, growth will improve, but not in a way that will cause inflation to pick up. And the Bank of Canada is an inflation-fighting central bank. It, it targets 2% inflation. Inflation is currently very close to the target, and I don't see inflation risks really changing materially in, in 2020. So my assumption is that the Bank of Canada won't, won't raise or cut interest rates in the coming year. Um, one of the big themes last year was the fact that the U.S. Federal Reserve was cutting interest rates. Um, I think the, the Federal Reserve is now done cutting rates. I think based on how, you know, what we're seeing in terms of the economic data, where we were seeing a slowdown, but now we're seeing the global economy and the U.S. economy stabilizing, I think that basically will keep the Fed on the sidelines. And that actually makes it easier for the Bank of Canada as well. The other thing to keep in mind is, um, you know, while unemployment is very low and typically could lead the Bank of Canada to raise rates because tight labor markets could lead to inflation, um, this time around, I don't think the Bank of Canada is likely to do that because I don't think the economy is going to be that strong. But they aren't going to cut rates to boost growth because they need to keep their powder dry in case a recession comes down the road, right? So the overnight rate's only at 1.75%. If we had a recession, they, they couldn't cut rates that much. And I, so I think that's one of the reasons why they didn't join other central banks in cutting rates last year. Internationally, will the U.S.-China trade disputes uh, still dominate the headlines? Um, I think it will. But at the moment, we're, you know, the, the latest development has been constructive, right? So the, the, the tariffs that America applied on, on China have not been fully remo- removed, but they have reached sort of a, a stage one deal, which, you know, gets the ball going for continued talks. The one thing I would highlight, though, is I, I do think it'll be a very volatile process from a point of view of headlines, right? So when, when China and the U.S. sit down at the table to continue their negotiations, you're going to have each country wanting to give the impression that, you know, they're playing hardball with the other. And what you, you always see in trade deals is it always sounds like things are going terrible and then suddenly something positive happens. And it's because it's because the headlines don't really reflect what's happening in, in, in the room where the negotiations are taking place. A lot of the, the commentary related to trade negotiations is posturing by governments to try and put down a position. And so as we head between now and the presidential election in, in November, um, I think that there is a risk that you're going to see more posturing um, on, on the U.S.-China trade file. I guess uh, staying uh, overseas, uh, Brexit, uh, I guess there's a clearer path uh, now to Brexit. How does that impact things in terms of Canada's dealings with uh, the, the, the UK and Europe? Well, I think one of the, the key things from a point of view of um, the UK leaving the EU is that Canada had a, has, a trade, uh, has a trade deal, a free trade deal in place with Europe called CETA. And one of the things that um, Canada has communicated is that after the UK has departed the EU, you know, we would we would be um, amiable to establishing a free trade deal with the UK along the same lines as in CETA. And so this could actually mean that we could reach a trade deal with the UK very quickly uh, because we could simply use CETA as the template for that trade deal. So I'm not sure if that's going to happen in in 2020, but it, but certainly as as the UK exits, um, Canada will secure. I am confident Canada will secure a trade deal with 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 the UK. 
Um, the most important thing about the UK Brexit is that we didn't end up with, we're, we're, it looks unlikely we're going to get a hard exit, which is where the UK leaves without any any rules or agreement around the terms upon, upon which of their departure. Um, that would have been very harmful and probably would have caused a deep recession in the UK and in Europe. And the European economy right now um, is very fragile. When you look at the German economy, you look at the UK economy, you know, these are some of the biggest countries in Europe, and their economies are, are, are struggling in terms of economic growth. So it wouldn't take a lot to actually tip them over into a recession. So the fact that we've reached, you know, the fact that it looks like the UK government has has the terms for a soft exit is really important because it really reduces one of the key international risks. Uh, we got a, just a, one more minute with Craig Alexander, Chief Economist, Deloitte Canada here on the Bill Kelly Show. Um, what kind of a wrench does a potential Middle East war throw in all this? Well, so from a Canadian point of view, um, you know, we do limited trade directly with the Middle East. Um, but if, uh, you know, a war, a war in the Middle East would be damaging to the global economy overall. And so, you know, a weaker global economy would be negative for Canada. The second dimension of, you know, increased tensions in the Middle East that impacts Canada is it can lead to financial market volatility, right? And you've, you've already seen, you know, as developments have unfolded, you've seen, you know, the equity market pull back on days where we've had the negative headlines. And so it, it does create additional um, volatility for, for investors. Um, it can lead to uh, higher bond yields generally because, you know, if, if, if there's a perception that there's greater global risk, you'll have more investors that will shift out of equities and go into bonds. Um, and, and, and so, you, you know, it could lead to, you know, more, more strength in the, the bond market. Uh, it could lead to uh, exchange rate fluctuations. When people, when, when global investors get scared, they tend to get fed to the U.S. dollar. Um, w- one perverse effect is, is that the, the U.S.-Iranian situation has pushed up oil prices, and this is actually positive for Canada. Um, so I would say, you know, what's going on in the Middle East is not, not positive for Canada, but, but the rise in oil prices actually is creating a, a positive economic effect. Um, the issue is if, if oil prices go up significantly from current levels um, rapidly because something goes wrong or things escalate in the Middle East, one of the things that could happen is that could weaken the global economy, and that that would be negative for Canada. So we benefit from higher oil, but if the global economy is hurt, um, Canada is worse off. And I think you know there's a point where the benefits from the higher oil don't offset the impacts of the weaker global economy. So this is a clear risk to monitor closely. Greg, appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot. Oh, it was my pleasure. Craig Alexander, Chief Economist, Deloitte Canada, reflecting on uh, Deloitte's Uh, Latest economic outlook for 2020, there are a lot of positive signs, but there are some things on the horizon that uh, should surely be uh, brought to the attention of those who are uh, in business, big and small. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.